Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group. It is Friday, March 12, 2012, and I am thoroughly and utterly honored uh, to have our guest with us today. Her name is Frances Hesselbein, and Frances is the author of a book called My Life in Leadership, A Journey and Lessons Learned Along the Way. And Frances has just an amazing story. And rather than uh, reading her bio, I would really like to just jump right in and introduce Frances to you. Um, I I will say that when she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, Award from President Clinton, he called her a pioneer for women, volunteerism, diversity and opportunity, and that is clearly what the Executive Girlfriends Group stands for. So, Frances, welcome. Thank you. I am so honored to be with you. Well, Frances, tell us a little bit about the early days of Frances Hesselbein, and how, how did you get from from uh, a, a small town in Pennsylvania that uh, you know is is known for some of its challenges back in the days of the, the flooding of the city, uh, to where you are today? Well, I grew up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, at that time, big steel, big coal, big labor, big hearts community. And in that um, western Pennsylvania town uh, where I went to high school with Boys and girls who uh, whose grandfathers had come from all over the world uh, to work in the steel mills and coal mines, and so Johnstown, Pennsylvania, in those days when there wasn't much talk about diversity, was wonderfully and richly diverse. And growing up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, prepared me to work all over the world, go wherever I wanted to go, and feel very much at home. So far, I've worked in 68 countries and never had one bad experience. But Mm -hmm. in those days, um, I married a young newspaper man right out of journalism school, he later became a remarkable producer of documentary films. But I married into a newspaper family, had a little boy, um, never wanted, ever wanted to leave Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And one day, a woman who had been barking at my heels for a long, long time uh, convinced me that I really should take a Girl Scout troop. I had tried to explain to this woman I knew nothing about little girls. I had a little <laughs> boy. But she had this sad story about um, 
the troop had lost its leader. She was now a missionary in India, and they were going to disband the troop, 30-year-old, 10-year-old Girl Scouts. So I said I would take it for six weeks, and then we would find a real leader, and we stayed together for eight years until they all graduated from high school. But in that time, I was a troop leader, and then I was chairman of the board, and I became the first woman to uh, chair a United Way campaign. And in those days, a lot of shock. My goodness, can women raise money? They had never had a woman chair a United Way campaign. I chose as my vice chairman, this was my privilege, the president of the United Steelworkers Union. Mm -hmm. It had never been included. And, of course, it mobilized the women. It mobilized organized labor. And that year, Little Johnstown, Pennsylvania, had the highest per capita giving of any United Way campaign. And in that town, I learned the power of inclusion, the power of diversity, the power of respect for all people. Um, quite by accident, and I was pushed into um, becoming the executive director of the local Girl Scout Council. I said I would take it for a couple months until we got the finances straightened out. I was there four years, and two years in the central part of uh, Pennsylvania. And July 1976, I arrived in New York City to become the CEO of Girl Scouts of the USA, the largest organization for girls and women in the world. And I was there 5,000 days, 13 years, and I never had a bad day. Some tough ones. And my last year was my most exuberant year. And and we made some remarkable progress. Um, Very quickly, we more than tripled racial, ethnic representation. Uh, Five years into my 13, we met Peter Drucker, who adopted us and said, we were the best managed organization uh, mm-hmm. in the country. And when a business uh, reporter said, Oh, you mean nonprofit? Peter Drucker said, No, I mean any organization. <laughs> in fact, if, uh, if uh, General Motors uh, needed a new CEO tomorrow, uh, I would recommend Frances Hesselbein. She could uh, manage any corporation in this country. So wow. we, it was a remarkable 13 years, and I loved every day. Um, best people in the world, best organization in the world. Uh, six weeks later, after I had... Uh, purchased a place to live in eastern Pennsylvania province, Doubleday, I would write a book on um, leadership 
thing I wasn't going to travel all the time. I found myself the president and CEO of the new Peter Drucker Foundation for Nonprofit Management. That was 21 years ago. Today it bears my name and same powerful message, strengthen the leadership of the social sector and our partners in business and government. So we started in the mountains of western Pennsylvania. I'm in my office looking out on the wonderful Park Avenue between 50 and 51, and life has never been more exciting, (laughs) more demanding, more rewarding. Well, Francis, you know, when I take a look at the number of of people you have touched, in fact, um, you know, I want to come back around to your book now. Uh, As I was reading um, the foreword by Jim Collins, uh, I was so touched by the story of you sitting in a room full of, of generals and the impact uh, that you had on them. And, and uh, I know you wouldn't share uh, about your, your small stature, but uh, you know, here you were very soft-spoken and, and uh, tiny by comparison to, to these uh, men who you know, jumped out of airplanes and, and led combat battalions. And uh, as Peter, or I'm sorry, as as Jim tells the story, um, you know, you just had them uh, wrapped in 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 attention as you were talking to them. And and I love uh, because my daughter is like this amazing fan of Star Wars, um, of talking about how you had a commanding presence, much like Yoda, dispending dispensing wisdom to the gathering of of Jedi Knights. So, Francis, you know, one of the things I love to hear when people talk about their books are, are the people they have encountered and the lives uh, that have been changed. What What is your favorite story uh, from the book? And, and maybe first you could tell us, who did you really write this book for? What was the audience that you had in mind as you jumped into uh, this endeavor? Well, I jumped into it reluctantly, prodded by our wonderful... Uh, publishers, Josie Bass, John Wiley, and I thought I had finished a book, sent it to them, and they returned it to me with the message, not personal enough. You must provide intimate details. And um, so I started over again. I think if, if you look at the book, I think my story about my grandmother and Mr. E tell more about who I am because that was the defining moment that determined the person I am, the leader I would become. The the beginning part of the book, just for those who are listening and who haven't had the pleasure of purchasing the book yet, um, Frances starts the book with uh, a section called Roots, and she uh, the three chapters there are stories of family lessons and love, embracing the defining moment, and defining yourself with the power of no. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the power of no means to you? Yes. Um, <clears throat> so often uh, we have a very 
irresistible offer or opportunity. It comes our way. And it sounds very exciting, yet it goes, some of it, it's not consistent with our own principles, our own ethics. And if we look at this opportunity and say, well, this time I'll do this, and I know a little bit of it isn't quite the way it ought to be, but next time then I'll be very uh, tough about adhering to my own values, my own principles. Uh, that is when we say no. If an offer comes, an opportunity in it, where it isn't, we would be working against some of our principles we've held all of our lives mm-hmm. faithful to. Nothing that would come to us from this action would be worth it because once we say yes to something that isn't quite ethical, isn't quite principled, very attractive, but doesn't quite meet our own sense of values, um, we never go back Mm -hmm. to being faithful because all right, we did it that time, it really didn't hurt us, and if we let down those that invisible protective line, um, once it is too easy to continue right. to follow. And so once we have said, these are my values, these are my principles, and this is who I am, uh, no matter what the situation, we never, ever say, well, this time I'll let it slip a little, but next right. time I'll go back to being Well, totally that's, that's very poignant to me because, as I mentioned um, when we were talking before we started the interview, uh, I'm just starting this new venture where we have uh, this uh, powerful travel capability that we're providing uh, both to not-for-profits and for um, for-profit businesses that have foundations or they've got a, a favorite charity. Um, and, you know, when we sat down in our planning session, you know, I said, okay, so who are we not going to sell to? Yeah, and, and you know what is outside of what we're comfortable with, and and just yesterday we had to have a discussion about that because, you know, anything that is out on the the fringe of the things that don't fit with our morals and our ethics, um, <laughs> you know, do reflect back on us, especially early on in in building building an organization and and building a reputation for. Uh, you know, the kinds of things that we want to be known for. So, uh, you know, that one is very, very timely uh, for me. Um, Francis, you you move on in part two of of the book to talk about your leadership journey. And I'm I'm just going to read through the chapters because I I find that for our our listeners, it's great to hear the kinds of things that you cover. So uh, the chapters are My Management Education, New York Calls, Challenging the Gospel, Becoming a change agent, finding out who you are, 
my journey with Peter Drucker, the indispensable partnership, governance and management board and staff, strengthening the leadership of the social sector, adventures around the world. So, Francis, um, you know, in keeping with uh, coming up with some of the personal stories from the book that really resonate with you and the, and the things that you did infuse in the book to give it that more personal uh, touch, can you talk to us about, um, you know, uh, again, just your favorite stories from those chapters? Uh, I wonder if I could ask you, you've read them. What resonated with what would you like me to choose? Well, Francis, um, you know, one of the things because I've I've been a strategic consultant for the last fifteen years, um, you know, I think the indispensable partnership and governance and management and board and staff and, and really uh getting everyone together uh is, is one of the things that holds so many uh organizations back and particularly I, I had mentioned to you that a lot of our members um, don't have the time anymore to participate in these calls live and, and are having to listen to them after the fact. Um, and their organizations over the last few years have been so focused on survival that they've really forgotten about building a culture um, where there is a partnership uh, within the organization. So maybe you could tell us a, a little bit. Um, it all begins about- with mission. Why do we do what we do? And you and I work to make sure it's seven or eight or nine or ten words, Peter Drucker says, has to fit on a T-shirt. So we begin with mission focus, why we do what we do. And we are very tough about maintaining this focus. Then we find the best people to be on that board, the ones who will be faithful to the mission, just like the staff, live with the values and have this marvelous vision of the future where they can change lives. Um, So you want this kind of board. You've chosen the staff, and it's really a team. Uh, We use a team approach to management, no up, down, top, bottom, but we use circular management. We really are team, and then for both the staff and the board, every person has to be so conscious of governance and management, and they are different. And so the board members, committee members, are very faithful to the mission, and they are aware of the responsibilities of governance of the board. And over here, we have this marvelous staff we've chosen very carefully, and they are totally committed to the accountabilities. You see, those are different. The responsibilities of the board, the staff accountabilities for the management of the organization for its work, its product. So the direction comes from this remarkable, inspiring board, governance, and now we have the staff that takes mission and values and goals, and they carry out the work. 
And when you have this marvelous balance, both groups passionate about the mission, faithful to the mission, but appreciating the difference between governance and management. If you have a board member who thinks, oh, I love what the staff is doing, they're having so much fun, I think I'll just join them for a while. Mm-hmm. No, no, we find a way to bring him or her back. You know, it's not. We have it's the power of mission that flows through both, but the significance of the difference between governance and management. One of the things I love, Francis, about how how you have laid out the book is, you know, throughout the book you you ask the critical questions that people need uh, to look at, and and that chapter you have some some very very powerful questions that. Uh, those who are in senior leadership, and and uh, especially, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of the women in the executive girlfriends group have have climbed to very senior levels, but they're in the travel industry in particular, which is uh, where my heritage has been for the last thirty years. There are very few women in the CEO chair, and really? so yes, yes, it, it's a, a very very interesting situation. And when we started the executive girlfriends group, we um, partnered with a an organization um that did a an executive women's forum each year and it was a 4 hour meeting tagged on to an industry conference that you know had both men and women but we had this very special by invitation only uh women's conference and one of the things that struck me and this was consistent over the 12 years that we did these conferences is first of all the women in leadership in the travel industry are um uh, the primary breadwinners of their household uh, over 90% of them. Um, you know, so they uh, managed to uh, handle kind of the home part of their life, which has held a lot of women back, but there was still a lot of stigma around that. But what I wanted to come around to was that, you know, these women have made it into positions of senior VPs and, and executive vice presidents to where they do get exposed to that interaction, you know, with the board. Um but uh, we have been trying to help uh, the women uh, of my industry and others, because we have women outside of the travel industry uh, in the Executive Girlfriends Group, really figure out how they can uh, actually become board members. And I know that you are on the board of a number of organizations, a large insurance company, and still involved with the Girl Scouts. What advice would you give to our members of, of how do you explore and, and open up opportunities to get involved, whether it's a not-for-profit, uh, board or, or an actual corporate board. Um, I would, first of all, insight? I would see myself life size. And I would begin by not thinking, oh, I would be a woman board member. No, I would be a board member who is a woman. Right. Take us out of a category. We're going to serve on a board, and we will serve because of what we bring to that board, not because of our gender. Now, quietly, you and I know, our gender adds a very special dimension, but it is not why we serve. We do what we do, why we would serve on that board. So we're very, very careful that we never refer to ourselves or our others as women leaders, women board members. 
Mm-hmm. Now, if someone says to you, we've looked at our board, we don't have a sufficient number of women serving on the board, that's all right. And you go on to the board and you are conscious you are a board member who is a woman. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't be invited to serve on a board unless you are out there meeting people. Uh, If you're invited to a reception to meet a distinguished corporate leader or an author or someone, get yourself out there. Meet people across the sectors, across the corporate sector, social sector. Very important. And it's amazing how a casual conversation at a reception uh, can light a little fire, spark there. And you get a call saying, you know, I did enjoy talking with you at the reception the other night. I wonder if we could have lunch. And maybe luncheon brings, we would like you to consider serving on our board. Mm. You don't do it by being remote. And, uh, but before you ever think about this, what is it you could contribute? You have to be very tough with yourself. If your answer says something about personality, uh, forget it. <laughs> what have you done? What has been your experience? You're talking to yourself. Uh, the groups you belong to, belong, have. Um, based upon all of this experience, what is it you would contribute? Uh, this is very important. You don't serve on a board for the pleasure of seeing your name in the annual report. <laughs> right. Boards very carefully where because of who you are, what you've done, what your life is, where you are, there are certain things you can contribute. And when you make this connection, it's the right board and the right person for all of these reasons. But first, you ask, what if someone is talking to you about this? What is the mission of your company? They should be able to say, our mission is blank, blank, for example. If you were being asked to serve on International Red Cross, they would say, well, our mission is to serve the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You're talking to us um, at um, our institute. Um we would just instantly say to strengthen the leadership of the social sector, their partners in business and government, mission comes first. And when you hear that mission, you put it against who you are, what you can contribute, what you will bring to it. And if you look at it and say, well, there really isn't much connection, walk away. There will be other opportunities. 
But when you look at the opportunity and everything connects, and yet there are areas where you can learn and grow, you grab it. Well, one of the things uh, that Jim Collins also said about you in the introduction, this one just jumped off the page at me, is that if you're open to being called and if you see service not as a cost to your life but as life itself, then you can't help but be caught in a giant self-reinforcing circle. And, you know, this this whole call to leadership and service, um, you know, is, is something that uh, – I am, you know, taking a much, much closer look at now of, of really the, the relationship between corporate business and those that are involved in, you know, whether it's local and, and community service or, or service at a more global level. Um, you know, it really does boil down to becoming a change agent and to be willing to step out and and to really break the status quo of the way that you've always done things. And this is one of the things we're doing with Rock the World uh, because, you know, no one's ever used uh, something that people do almost, you know, every day, every week, certainly every month. Um, you know, there's some uh, opportunity to travel and then to be able to just tap in to the everyday activities of people who want to contribute but don't always think about writing a check. Don't um, know how to open a door. Right. You open doors. Yes. And many of them have never been opened before. In 1846, um, Emerson wrote, Be ye an opener of doors. Mm. And I take that very seriously, as you have just expressed. You do. Uh, Around here, we have a private joke about my tattoos on both shoulders, uh, invisible ink. You can't (laughs) read them, but I know they're there. And one says, to serve is to live. Mm. And that is just very important. And I can tell from the way you're talking that the service you're giving is just part of a marvelous life. Well, I, you know, I the thing that I embrace, and and I I have young children. I'm I'm in my fifties, but have a uh, a fifth grade boy and a, an eighth grade girl, and you I know, envy I, you. <laughs> well, it is so much fun, and and I I, uh, I am assuming that you never did have a girl, except for all of your Girl Scouts. I'm sure became your girls. Yes, um, did, but have well, I had one son. And all my little Girl Scouts were older than he was, so he had a lot of big sisters. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Uh, But, you know, I look at my kids, and the thing that would make me the happiest in life is for them to want that tattoo, Francis, and and to uh, really live. Yeah, a visible one, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I was telling somebody the other day I was really reluctant to give my 14-year-old daughter uh, a Facebook page and finally gave in, and it couldn't make me prouder that, you know, where you're supposed to put um, who you work for, she put a servant of God on, oh. on her Facebook page as a middle schooler. And, you know, I, mean, I was just so proud of her. 
And uh, back, You're doing uh, something right, my friend. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, Francis, because a number of years ago, um, the year that we had four um, hurricanes come through Florida, I live in Tampa, and, you know, we had near misses that whole uh, uh, fall, and that was the year that New Orleans uh, got devastated. And the following Saturday, or I, I think it was actually Thursday, we were watching TV, and Kira was watching – um, you know, the devastation and all the stories that were coming out of the news media about what was going on. And uh, because of where we're located, there were a lot of, uh, and I'll call them refugees because that, that's uh, that's what they were at the time, were actually coming to Tampa. And Kira heard about that. And there were a number of radio stations and different organizations that were holding fundraisers. And she said, well, Mommy, I want to do something. And I thought, okay. And she was I think nine at the time, and so she said, "I want to hold a bake sale this weekend." And so, you know, I explained to her that, you know, because we live in a gated community within a gated community with without a lot of traffic, that she really needed to do some footwork uh, before she started. Well, she set up this bake sale, and I told her I would match uh, with my company whatever she raised. And uh, that following Monday, we walked into the Red Cross office here in Tampa. And, you know, they were very harried, again, because of all of the influx of people, you know, needing help locally. And, and you know, the woman looked at her and she said, honey, you know, what can I do for you? And Kira had in her hand all these checks and cash. And she said, well, you know, I, I raised some money over the weekend. Well, she had raised $2,400. And when, when the director of the uh, Red Cross saw her, you know, he took her in the back and took her picture in front of the Red Cross flag. And and I set out on a mission to try to find a way for my, at the time, grade school daughter to volunteer. And do you know, Francis, there is hardly anything um, for kids who have that giving heart. And at the time, I set up a, a, a 501c3. I, I wasn't able to devote time uh, to it, so it kind of uh, sat um uh, dormant uh, for a while, and uh, you know, I still would like to see it resurrected. And it, it was all about kids being able to donate their time to other established charities. And I've actually, I've got a good friend who just took the job of doing national fundraising for the Red Cross. And I said, look, you know, here she started her giving life, you know, with the Red Cross. I would really love to see, you know, someone like that. Uh, take a lead in getting these kids who want to give of their time, their talents, and their treasures. And granted, their treasures aren't very big, but their parents' treasures, you know, can be significant. And, uh, you know, to see these kids and, uh, you know, it was funny because I, I guess there are, you know, a lot of issues with, uh, you know, just the the uh, uh, risks associated in involving children. Um, but I thought, you know, there have got to be things that kids can do. So, uh, again, you know, I, I am hoping that if my daughter comes to me with wanting a tattoo, I will tell her about Frances Hesselbein's tattoo. <laughs> Always invisible. Invisible yes. ink. Yes. Now, there is an organization called dosomething.org. Uh-huh. It attracts teenagers. Nancy Lubin, L-U-B-I-N, is the person who founded this. You ought to go on the website and see if maybe this is attractive to you. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I, I had set up Kids for Humanity 
uh, org, and it was intended to be a uh, uh, kind of a, a a child organization of of other established charities where the kids could you know pick from the charities that they wanted to uh, to support. But it, it looks like she has done that, so I will definitely take a look at that. And I, I'm going to be launching a radio show show uh, for Rock the World Enterprises where I I do interviews of people who have really left a legacy and and are change agents, uh, particularly in the not for profit sector. But I also want to target corporations who really make giving a priority. Yes. And not just as something to tick the box off on on something, but where it's really a part of co- corporate culture. So, if you uh, know of anyone who I should be interviewing uh, for those radio shows, I would love uh, to have that introduction. Indeed. Well, Francis, um, would you tell our listeners just a little bit about the Leader to Leader uh, Institute and um, how they can learn more about what you're doing? Well, we have a long history, 21 years, and uh, we began as the Peter Drucker Foundation for Nonprofit Management six weeks after I left my marvelous Girl Scouts of the USA mm-hmm. a job, and uh, a company marvelous company, Mutual of America Life Insurance Company, gave us our offices. And um, today we have had several names. When Peter became ill and very frail, we thought the most loving and respectful thing to do would be give the name back to the family. And we took the name of our journal Apex Prize-winning journal for six years. We took the name of the journal, Leader to Leader. Now, this mm-hmm. is February. The board of Leader to Leader said to me in a very firm voice, in this matter, you have no voice and no vote. And they voted to use my name, and we are now the Francis Hesselbein Leadership Institute as of February 1st. Oh, wonderful. In my heart, we're still the Peter Drucker Foundation because whatever we do, we carry Peter around the world, around the country, and uh, by now we've published 27 books in 30 languages, and Mm. I've worked in 68 countries so far, and we have these marvelous people who write for us and speak for us at our conferences, and um, it is just the most remarkable 21 years. We have the best, very small staff, uh, best staff team anyone could ever imagine, and Mutual America Life Insurance gives us our beautiful offices on Park oh, Avenue wonderful. in New York. And we work, we have a wonderful program uh, with the uh, generals of the U.S. Army who are, will be leaving soon, and we have a generals in transition program where we uh, have a 
I think it's a marvelous uh, message when you leave this, the United States Army. Right. The organizations waiting for you, needing what you bring. Oh. And as we open these quarterly sessions with 18 or 20 generals and their spouses, I begin by saying no one in this room has ever had a job. Well, they all look stunned. There are two and three and four-star generals. Right. My next sentence is, you were called to do the work you have been doing. And now as you leave the United States Army, there is a new call. I talk about the social sector and how all of us are trying to um, help, whether it's education, uh, good education for all children, whatever it is that children and families need, we try to provide and Oh, that's so interesting, Francis. I'm I'm helping a um, a former uh, lieutenant colonel uh, in the army here in Tampa, who were uh, putting together an organization called From the Front Line to the Front Line. And I love it. Yeah, it's it's for uh, because I, I interviewed a couple of years ago uh, a young uh, commander of of a, a very very high profile um, invasion in Afghanistan and. I was so stunned at the end of the interview, and he had written a, an interesting book about everything that happened while he was there. And I thought, here this guy is 22 years old, but he knows more about decision-making and strategy than most you know, 40- and 50-year-olds in corporate America. And, you know, and corporate America just isn't tuned in to the power of you know, not only that leadership experience and that decision-making experience, but the whole notion of respect and service. And so, you know, we are hoping to, you know, put together some practical programs where uh, we can um, really uh, educate both sides of the equation and find companies who are willing, uh, you know, to put together a mentorship program to bring, you know, again, not not just the, the, the generals who are retiring, but all the way down to these these young 20-year-olds who, you know, have lived just a, such an amazing full life even at that age and have so much to give. So uh, we'll have to chat about that more. I, I I could spend all day talking to you, I think. I too. Thank you. Well, Francis, I thank you so much uh, for your generous gift of time today. And, uh, again, for those folks who would like to know more uh, about what Francis is is doing, uh, really, you can just Google her, and there is so much that you will find. Uh, but her her um, website, Francis, can you share uh, the institute's website? Yes, Hesselbeininstitute dot org. Mm-hmm. You'll find some incredible global webinars on it. You'll find all kinds of articles and all kinds of help. It's very, very rich, and I hope everyone who has been listening to us will go org, And there is a way, if you look at that, um, Fortune Magazine did an interview. It's called Lessons uh, from 
Drucker and the Girl Scouts. Uh, it's Fortune magazine. The article is there, the interview, followed by a five-minute videotape with music. And we were so amazed we had nothing to do with videotape. It's on Fortune's website. So we hope you'll have a good time with our website, and it will direct you to in many directions. Well, great. Well, Francis, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. And and for those Executive Girlfriends Group members who are listening to this uh, interview, you'll be able to go, if you happen to be listening while you're driving or out running, uh, you can look on the Executive Girlfriends Group private site and you will be able to uh, get in touch with Frances. Uh, Patty will post uh, the information for connecting with her. For those of you who are listening on Blog Talk Radio to this broadcast, uh, again, you can look at Frances um, at her leadership website that she just spoke of, Hesselbein Institute, and Hesselbein is H-E-S-S-E-L-B-E-I-N, institute.org. And Francis, uh, again, I'm I am looking forward to getting to know you better. It looks like we have just tons in common, and uh, and you are you you did say you're in New York, is that correct? Yes, I'm in New York. This is our office, 320 Park Avenue. Great. New York 10022, and we do hope you'll go to our website. It's very exciting, and I loved our dialogue today and look forward to you know we're fellow travelers absolutely uh, and um, we will meet again well we will and I I actually just had I do a lot of uh, consulting work with the investment community and just had a request this morning for doing a workshop in New York next month so it looks like I may be in New York in, in April and I will very definitely let you know ahead of time hopefully you'll be in town that will be great fun. And it was okay. a great honor to be with all of you who've been listening to Service to Live. Well, thank you so much. And, Teresa, thank you for arranging it and Patty for uh, putting everything together. And, again, if you would like more information about the Executive Girlfriends Group, you can go to executivegirlfriendsgroup.com, which is our public site. Uh, we are a membership organization, and you can find more information about it there. Francis, I will talk to you very, very soon. I hope you have a wonderful weekend, and uh, God bless you for uh, all the lives you've touched. Thank you. Thank you, Chickie. Okay, thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 